Welcome to the Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouli-Rajamandi. Today I'm joined once more by Tushar Jain. Tushar is Managing Director at Multicoin Capital, a pioneering crypto investment firm and one of the biggest investors in Helium. He joins us to discuss his new article, The Helium Flywheel, and break down all the components that ensure that Helium miners will have a positive return on their investment for the next million hotspots and beyond. Tushar, welcome to the show. Hi, Armand. How's it going? Good. Uh, good to have you back. This is your third time on the hotspot. I think you're officially now our uh, most frequent guest. You passed Amir with two appearances and, and you're also a fan favorite. So happy to have you back. I'll uh, be sure to let Amir know that we're competing. He'd like to be back, I'm sure. I think he's going to match <laughs> you soon. So yeah, I, I'm really excited to talk to you about this article. I think this is going to be like a quick dive uh, on this article you wrote on the Multicoin blog. It's a good general update of what's going on with Helium, um, why it's working and how it might continue to work. And it's called the Helium Flywheel. So for anyone who is interested in reading this blog post, it is on multicoin.capital. They have a lovely blog where they share their thoughts and analytics about various things in the crypto ecosystem. And this is one of their latest posts. So it's called the Helium Flywheel, written by Tushar. I, just to start on this article, what exactly is the Helium Flywheel? Like, what does it mean to have a flywheel? And what are some of the components uh, of the flywheel that are used to drive the growth of Helium? Yeah, just so for some background, I, I managed a firm called Multicoin Capital. We were an investor in Helium. We led their Series C round. We've invested since then as well. So, you know, for some disclosures, uh, we own HMT, we own Equity and Helium Inc. You know, we're very incentivized to promote this network. Also, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a financial advisor, and this is advice. You know, please do your own research. One of the things that I really like to look for as an investor is I like to look for feedback loops because feedback loops are what drive really big outcomes. That's when you have some sort of escape velocity that can be achieved. And once you hit that escape velocity, the feedback loop will drive growth until you uh, can expand and grow into that market. When we originally saw Helium, we saw a potential for a massive feedback loop or what I call the Helium flywheel. The Helium flywheel is, is actually quite simple. The way that it works is that you start out with miners deploying hotspots and growing out the network. This leads to devices being able to use the network, which burns data credits, effectively increasing the price of HNT due to the burn and mint equilibrium, which gives you a better ROI for mining, which leads people to buy and deploy more hotspots. There's another complementary loop where as people buy more hotspots, there are economies of scale for making hotspots and you start to see manufacturers competing and that actually ends up in lower hotspot costs, uh, which increases mining ROI. That same loop also works for devices using the network where economies of scale reduce those costs uh, and help drive more usage and then increase the ROI of mining HNT. So everything kind of centers around increasing the ROI of mining HNT, which then leads to more network growth. Uh, when we first invested in Helium, uh, there were no hotspots on the network. And when we started mining HMT in the very early days, uh, there were only a few hundred hotspots in the world. And so each hotspot earned quite a lot of HMT. Uh, there were days where hotspots were earning 100 HMT plus, you know, for a single hotspot. Uh, but that doesn't happen anymore. Um, as the network has grown, we've seen two major changes happen that affect mining ROI. The first is each hotspot makes fewer HNT, but then the second is that we've seen the price of HNT increase. 
And so as we see this flywheel play out, this is exactly what we expected to see happen uh, because mining is becoming more difficult. HNT is becoming more scarce as it is actually used. And then this then creates the incentive for people to go out, buy more hotspots, deploy them and expand the network. Yeah, there's one really interesting aspect of Helium, which is that speculators actually drive growth in the network directly. And I can't really think of anything else where that is the case. But in this case, you know, if someone are, is to invest in HNT and increase the demand for HNT and up the price, they are actually increasing the miner's ROI. So, you know, these are all parts of the flywheel that you just described. One thing that I think is interesting about this is that all of this is happening uh, by creating a much, much, much lower cost wireless network than currently exists for any given protocol. So in the article you state about 100x lower cost than traditional top-down telecom business models. And as we've discussed previously, like in episode three, part of this is from removing middlemen and just removing expenses. If you don't need to send people up a telephone pole, if you don't need to pull fiber, if you don't need to worry about uh, rent, then you know all these things drastically reduce the cost compared to traditional deployment models. So we're doing all of this within uh, the context of providing a network that is uh, easier and cheaper to run and also cheaper to use. I wanna go through a couple of important topics. So first I wanna talk about other factors in the ecosystem that have stalled growth, that have prevented the flywheel from working at, at maximum capacity. And then also um, some examples of what might happen in the future once those bottlenecks are alleviated. So, so let's start with the, the growth bottlenecks. So for anyone who's out of the loop on this, there have been a lot of bottlenecks with manufacturing and supply chain. LoRa is a proprietary technology. All the chips are made by Semtech. Those chips filter down into uh, other components, which end up being full hotspot units. And there are other components that go into hotspots that are very supply constrained, like LoRa concentrators, for example, and you know the Raspberry Pi boards. You know, as of now, uh, ever since Helium decided to stop manufacturing the hotspots on their own and instead through HIP-19 approve other manufacturers, we've seen uh, a lot of manufacturers come on board. We now have five approved manufacturers. We've got Nevra, Carelink, Bobcat, Rack, and Synchrobit. They're all at different stages of deploying uh, more hardware. You know, long story short, Rack has been the longest approved vendor and they are the only ones who've actually shipped units other than Helium Inc. themselves. So this has created a, a large bottleneck as everyone sort of tries to wrangle with the supply constraints um, generated by COVID-19 and other uh, worldwide supply chain events. This is, you know, this has created great challenges for the manufacturers and, and unfortunately for consumers, it's created shipping delays over and over and over again as the manufacturers are unable to meet their, you know, aggressive timelines. You know, there's a lot of pain on all sides here for anyone who's a fan of the Helium network. No, you know, nobody likes to see the growth stalled like this. For someone who's buying a hotspot, nobody likes to see their order push back and push back and push back and, and people are rightfully frustrated and I think some people are you know who don't understand that helium is real may feel like um, they may have been looped into something you know fraudulent even in, in some of these cases which you know that's never been proven to be the case all the manufacturers are legitimate but you know if you make an investment into something that is uh, an unknown unknown uh, right you, you don't know what's going to happen uh, when you buy this thing and then it gets delayed months and months suspicion arises so that's a negative thing for the network as well um, and then as an investor in the network, right, you don't want to see uh, the growth slow. You want to see it go as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think COVID definitely threw a wrench in things for supply chains. So this year has been like a truly exceptional year, unlike anything that any of us have ever experienced. And there's a global semiconductor shortage right now. So these two things are compounding and creating some of these delays. It's extremely frustrating to see the delays from any of these perspectives, like you mentioned. 
but I'm also confident that they will be solved and that these units will ship. We now are, are seeing announcements from Nebra and Bobcat that they've both shipped units. Having the first two manufacturers beyond rack actually shipping units is a huge milestone and something to be celebrated. Also the entrance of some of these very large existing companies like Curlink or Broan who want to enter into helium hotspot manufacturing. And they already have a lot of experience and you know, significant multi-million dollar businesses in creating and selling consumer electronic devices and creating and selling LoRa devices specifically. I think they will be much more able to handle this and handle the demand that is coming to actually uh, buy helium hotspots. From the latest numbers that I've heard, there's over 100,000 hotspots on back order. And there's been you know, something over $50 million in aggregate spent to purchase hotspots and deploy this network. That's quite a lot of money and it will attract more and more hotspot manufacturers into this ecosystem to compete and offer better products for consumers. Yeah, it's a shocking statistic, as you said, over 100,000. I believe it's actually closer to, or maybe over 200,000 at this point, hotspots have been pre-ordered, which is 10 times as many hotspots that current, than currently exist on the network at the $350 price point as well. So we're not exactly talking about huge price reductions compared to the original Helium hotspot, which originally retailed for $500 and then was reduced to 400 and sometimes 350 for the second generation. So we really have seen no movement in price. It's just an incredible increase uh, in interest. And so all these things play into the flywheel. One of the important aspects of the flywheel is hotspot price. You know, if a person owning a hotspot and planning to deploy it can pay less dollars for the hotspot, then by definition, if they're earning the same amount of HNT, they are going to make more. They're going to make a faster ROI. I know in episode three, and, and maybe after that, we discussed, you know, what are the future price predictions? I think we talked about it in hip, the HIP20 episode. Uh, how can driving down hotspot prices improve the flywheel and uh, increase the ROI, reduce the time to ROI for hotspot owners. One thing that we have upcoming, which we'll cover in a, in a future episode is light hotspots, light gateways. So these are really gonna reduce the complexity of hardware required to uh, run a hotspot and thus reduce the cost. This isn't gonna come for, for many months until validators are ready and until there are a few other um, pieces of the puzzle in place on the software side. But, but what can we expect to see in the coming, let's say six months in terms of uh, hotspot prices? Yesterday, in the DY community call, we reviewed a very exciting proposal from Broan, who claims to be able to offer an $89 light hotspot or light gateway. Uh, I'll, I'll save that for you know the episode that you're doing about light gateways and what they enable, but $89 and based on the current estimations of when the underlying tech would be ready to actually support those light gateways, that seems like end of this year, before the end of this year that would meet our expectations of hotspot prices actually falling. Um, right now, the hotspot prices aren't falling just because the manufacturers cannot keep them in stock. And so they have no incentive to lower prices. If they, they might lower their costs because they're manufacturing in greater scale, but they're just taking that margin because they literally can't make the hotspots fast enough to sell them. You know, in terms of economic fairness, like they deserve those higher margins because that gives them the capital to then invest back into increasing production to actually totally meet global demand. As soon as this bottleneck is resolved on hotspot manufacturing, uh, I expect these prices to start plummeting and I expect there to be multiple options to buy hotspots under $100 in 2022. Wow, that's gonna be an incredible uh, reduction in cost. And I can't even imagine what kind of growth that will bring considering we already have 200,000 pre-orders at the $350 price point. So given all that data, 
uh, let's jump in. Let's assume 200,000 pre-orders. Now, I don't have exact numbers here. I just have whispers from vendors or things that they've shared publicly. But let's assume 200,000 hotspots are going to be coming onto the network within, let's say, the next year. So let, let's let's turn that into a concrete example of what that means for a hotspot owner. And this is a question I get a lot. You know, I, I deploy hotspot with someone. They're excited. They see the HNT coming in. They're like, wow, this is incredible. Hotspot mining is extremely profitable right now. You even have it in your article here. The ROI is currently roughly 10 days for a $350 hotspot, which is just bonkers, right? For any investment to have ROI, any traditional investment to have ROI in even six months or a year uh, is incredible, but you know, 10 days is just unheard of. So obviously this is not something that's, that's gonna continue. And I think people are wondering, well, you know, what happens when we have a lot more hotspots on the network? So what I like to do is, is go even further than assuming we're gonna have two, 200,000 extra hotspots. Uh, I like to take it as 50X growth from where we are now. So this is the example I'm going to use, and it's based off of an example that I give people in person and, uh, you know, in chat, and also using some of the numbers that you provided here in this article. Right now, uh, let's assume your hotspot is earning the average of 4.82 HNT per day that you list in this article. Now, on the article's date of March 17th, 2021, I looked up the price, and it was $8. So at 4.82 HNT per day, it's about $1,150 per month. So let's round that up. Let's take that to $1,200 per month just for ease of calculation here. There's two events that we need to focus on. One is the growth of hotspots on the network themselves. As we've covered before, as more hotspots come on the network, the fixed earnings pool is diluted by each additional hotspot. So for example, if the network were to go from 20,000 to 40,000 hotspots, there would be roughly a halving in what each hotspot earns because those 40,000 would split the same amount of monthly HNT as the 20,000 were previously splitting. So that's one aspect is network growth. Now there's, there's more to this, right? There, there are more factors. It's not a direct 2x decrease uh, in earnings. There are a lot of factors at play, like which hotspots are actually participating in proof of, proof of coverage, which ones are lone wolves out in the wild, not earning anything at all, which ones have good connectivity, and how is the health of the P2P network and block production? All of these things influence earnings. But for, for the sake of this example, we're going to assume that all those things remain constant. If you're earning about $1,200 per month, let's take the first factor, which is hotspot growth, and assume that grows by 50x. So instead of having 20,000 hotspots in the network, we now have a million hotspots in the network. Now, obviously this is going to reduce your earnings by 50X. So what does that mean? Well, if you take 1200 divided by 50, you get $24 per month. Now let's, let's think about the ROI then. If your hotspot still costs $350 and the HNT price remains the same, you're gonna be earning $24 per month and your ROI is gonna be a little over a year. But there's one more factor that we have to take into consideration, which is the halving. So on August 1st, 2021, all rewards for all hotspots will go in half. So you have to cut that in half again. So now you have $12 per month and you have roughly a three-year ROI. But, and this is the big but, that all assumes that the HNT price remains static at $8. If you assume, which I think would be reasonable to assume, that as the network grows, uh, that it will become more valuable to investors as they see it as more globally dominant, there will be increased demand for HNT and the price will go up. That adds another factor to this calculation. So let's assume that the price doubles. Now you're back to a little over a year ROI. If the price goes 5X, if it goes to $40, then you're looking at well under a year ROI, which again is still pretty good for any investment. And this is at a cost of $350 per hotspot with 1 million hotspots on the network after the halving. So you're still looking at a less than one year ROI on a $350 hotspot. 
Now, if someone is able to come up with a $100 hotspot, let's just say, you know, the price has doubled from eight to $16 and you're earning $24 per month. Now your ROI is back to roughly four months. This is the example that I like to give to people. It lines up really well with the examples that you give here in the article. Uh, is there anything I'm missing in my example that I give to people? The key thing that I would ask people to focus on there is if there are a million hotspots on this network, what does that mean? Like actually stop and try to visualize it. Maybe you could pull up the current map um, and this is what the coverage map looks like today. If you imagine 50 times more coverage than that, that is an insane amount of additional utility. I actually think utility doesn't scale linearly for a network like Helium. It scales according to Metcalf's law. It, it's actually squared because having more coverage, contiguous coverage, covering more people really helps drive that flywheel, makes it accessible, makes it uh, useful everywhere. And so I actually think utility grows by number of nodes on the network squared. And so having a map that looks like this one that Armand's pulled up uh, from our article, which it's just a mock-up, you know, we just guessed where would those hotspots be and we place them in the major population centers of the world. I think that a future where the Helium network covers, you know, something like 80% of the world population is one where it's far more valuable than it is today. And I think that entire flywheel is what will make this possible we've covered a lot of the aspects of the flywheel, right? You have the economies of scale, which we talked about. The manufacturers are going to be able to produce more units at a faster rate, which will reduce costs as, as happens uh, in any manufacturing scenario. You have manufacturer competition. This is manufacturers competing on price, competing on features, right? What's the ease of use of the hotspot? Is it deployable outdoors? How soon can you get it? That's a really important thing that people are willing to pay uh, more for. Does it have beefy hardware? Some people might want industrial hardware. So all of this manufacturer competition is gonna drive down costs at each different price point, uh, which you see here, lower hotspot cost, uh, improves the mining ROI. Now, one piece that we haven't fully covered is the right side of the flywheel here, which starts with more devices uh, using the network. And as of now, we have about, you know, one to $200 of data credits burned every week, which is definitely a start. Um, there are many partnerships in the pipeline and there are many, you know, device manufacturers that are sort of ramping up production. So. What are we looking at when it comes to this? Because I, I really view this as the final frontier of Helium growth, right? The ultimate thing we need is for more devices to use the network, burn data credits, which will in turn create uh, price pressure on HNT and create supply pressure on the supply of HNT. So, so, you know, what are we looking at in terms of when this might really start ramping up? Devices are on the network today. They're not actually at the scale that we need. Like this is early days. There's lots of pilots and cool ideas. People are hacking away and building at this. And, and I see a lot of those uh, builders you know, going and coming up with ideas. There's some really cool things like uh, a better mousetrap. I thought that one was pretty exciting because right now in some countries there's laws around humane mousetraps and not actually killing the mouse. And so in certain industrial settings, they literally have to put out mousetraps and then they have to hire someone to walk around and check them because having the mouse starve to death in the trap is also inhumane. And so having a mouse trap that just sends a signal to you every time it catches a mouse, sounds like a, a silly dumb thing, but actually it saves a lot of money for a lot of these you know, more industrial use cases where they actually need to have you know, tens of thousands of these mouse traps everywhere. Uh, we're seeing location trackers, we're seeing uh, atmosphere quality trackers for tracking things like you know, how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere or how much uh, ash or, or, or other things are in the atmosphere. Uh, but these things take time to scale up. One, they suffer from the same bottlenecks on manufacturing that the hotspots do. Uh, the global supply chains have just been completely uh, disrupted due to COVID. As that starts to go back to normal, I expect people to be able to manufacture those sensors faster, easier, cheaper. 
Um, and second, hardware is just slower than software to deploy, right? Like you have lead cycles for manufacturing, you have to actually ship it, you have to distribute it. It's just slower. Uh, but on the flip side, it's also way stickier. I'm not going to buy the next dog tracker that works on something else. Like I already have one and it works fine. Um, and I'm not going to switch over my deployment of 10,000 better mousetraps um, because like I have 10,000 of them and they work, right? And so while it's a little bit slower, I think that it is showing very good promise at the very early stages. And I think that as supply chains ease up, we'll see a lot more growth. Yeah, and a lot of people, I think, focus on the industrial usage aspect, which is definitely huge. I mean, water leak sensors, better mousetraps, civil engineering type deployments, right? Where, where you're talking about, you know, parking meters, water meter readings, things like that, all are huge, right? These are we're measuring in the millions and millions of units. Um, but as you said, there's inertia there and they'll take time. And I want to I want to share this tweet thread that I did recently because I, I saw someone talking about, well, if we're just going to be waiting for the industrial use cases, it's going to take forever and it doesn't really matter you, you know, what any individual does. We just have to wait for those companies to ramp up. I was thinking about that and I think Helium is different in one key way in that it's permissionless. Permissionless means that anyone can connect a device to the Helium network without making a big upfront commitment to a carrier. That means that garage tinkerers and startups can build on the network with almost no startup cost. So 20 bucks for a little Haltech cube cell and maybe $2 in data credit. It's completely new territory for a wireless network. It has the potential to drive huge innovation. I like to take the example of software distribution before high-speed internet. There, was, there were gatekeepers, right? You needed a publisher to press 10,000 CDs, box them up and ship them. When high-speed internet came around, suddenly you could distribute software in whatever way you wanted. The open source community was born and then business models like SaaS, pay as you go, right? There are a million ways to transact with uh, software vendors now. I foresee that for Helium, due to its permissionless nature, there will be some viral use cases invented by individuals or small groups, small startups that we can't even imagine because we're so stuck in the mindset of what's possible in the context of traditional carrier to user relationships. I agree with all of that. I thought that was a great tweet thread. Another aspect that we haven't covered, which I think is the final one, is that data credit usage won't be driven just by LoRaWAN. It's gonna also be driven by other protocols operating on the Helium network. We've seen an incredible presentation in the community call yesterday from FreedomFi, who's working on 5G. Helium CEO Amir Halim has shared images of I, I, what I believe is his own uh, 5G setup working somewhere near his house and providing 110 megabits per second on a phone, which was really exciting to see. Uh, and as we know, there are already millions of devices out there that could connect to a network like this and cause data credits to be consumed through MNO and MVNO partnerships. There is definitely a lot of potential depending I guess the question is when, and that's hard to answer, right? Depending on when these things happen, depending on when 5G is added to the Helium network, depending on when either some huge industrial partner ramps up deployment of some LoRaWAN use case here or in Europe or in China or at anywhere that the Helium network uh, is deployed, it's gonna take a global marketplace and drive all of that value into one token and one uh, network, which I think is really exciting. So one parting thought for you, uh, I'll make a prediction. I believe that by the end of 2021, Helium will be the largest wireless network in the world, judging by total area and total number of people covered uh, in that wireless coverage. Uh, th that'll be true for the LoRaWAN network this year. And I think it'll be true for 5G and LTE networks maybe two or three years from now. You know, I couldn't uh, agree with you more, Tushar. And thank you so much for taking the time to go over this article with me. Um, I think people are going to be really excited about reading it and rereading it and sort of uh, absorbing all the things. So just an excellent piece of writing and uh, appreciate you sharing it with the community. Thank you for having me. Uh, great to be here again. Thanks so much, Tushar. Take care.